This is the History Voyager, a podcast about history. My name is Benjamin Ketchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. The podcast has grown quite significantly in the last, I guess, week or so. Thank you very, very much for your interest in history and the Spanish flu particularly. I wanted to talk right now about my plans for the channel because I'm sure I have some new listeners who don't really understand or might not be aware of the plans for the channel. My plan is that this is going to be a the first season of sort of a, a deep dive in history, which hopefully will go on uh, for many, many years. Anyway, thank you so much and... We'll uh, pick up the narrative now about the uh, Spanish flu of 1918. By the fall of 1918, the war was taking a backseat to the flu. By the fourth week in September of 1918, there were 20,000 deaths that were officially credited to the flu. Even at the time, the medical professionals, especially the younger medical professionals, understood that well and truly that that was, you know, not an accurate number at all. They understood from their friends and also their family and also just them knowing that there were people missing at work and school and places all over the country, all over the world, in fact. And there were the young doctors, really, they were ping-ponging letters back and forth and they were talking about, you know, the, the, a lot of frustration with the older doctors and also, I guess, the, what you'd call the powers that be that were really, really trying to stifle this because they didn't want to panic people. And also, especially in America at the time, the, there was no concept of the government stepping in and fixing anything or providing aid. So communities had very much sort of a, a vested interest, if you will, in tamping down reports of the flu to a huge, huge degree. Okay, so I'm going to give you some numbers here. On September 23rd, there were 20,000 deaths officially in the United States from the Spanish flu. Five days later, there were 31,000 official deaths from the Spanish flu. Now, what's interesting here is that legally pneumonia could not be considered uh, like a federal emergency. So a lot of places, a whole lot of places, started putting down deaths as pneumonia. And not only did they start doing it, they were doing it. And, you know, historians and medical professionals alike basically, you know, are pretty much in agreement that a lot of those deaths might not have been pneumonia deaths at all. They might have been Spanish flu deaths. Another way to do this was to tell people that, oh, so-and-so died of the cold. Now, here's what's really, really funny to, to modern ears. Um, in 1918, in 1917, 
folk wisdom and, and received wisdom essentially was you could die of a cold, but you could not die of the flu. Now, of course, now we know the opposite of that, that you can't really die of the cold, but you can die of the flu. The United States Public Health Service, the forerunners to the Centers for Disease Control, currently headquartered in Atlanta, my hometown, was basically only charged with taking note of military and military-adjacent sicknesses and deaths. And they even said as much. Their own doctors and folks suspected, some in some cases quite loudly, that, you know, there were cities in the East, namely Boston and Philadelphia, in which the flu had become self-sustaining, and they also believed that flu was widespread in the country all the way from southern Virginia all the way to essentially the Canadian border. Now, here's what's really fascinating about that. In the south, that is the southeast, you know, the government essentially, the federal government essentially as part of basically the end of Reconstruction essentially let the southern governors basically run everything. So, to that, to that end, the Spanish flu was officially massively undercounted in the South. Massively, massively, massively undercounted in the South. They're really, I mean, honestly, it sounds funny to say this in, in the day and age of smartphones and, and Google and stuff, but there really honestly is no, uh, I guess, no real um, way to know how, how many people died of the Spanish influenza once you get out of coastal Virginia in the south. It's, it's really sort of a tragedy. Um, you know, and that has a lot to do with the fact that all over the country, but especially in the south, Medicine was basically seen as something left to the locals. And it, right there, they only really treated the white locals. And if, if it came to it, they were only really going to treat the upper crust white locals. You know, and this is because, like I keep saying, and I, I really keep saying it, like I keep saying, the received wisdom pretty much everywhere was that only undesirable people could get and die from the flu and that was pretty much everywhere in the world and when you add to that basically active racism well you start to see where this is going i mean you know so it's it's really sort of a tragedy that you know in the south Essentially, once you get out of the major cities, if you happen into a hospital, um, nobody really knows truly how many people died of the flu because there were so many places that, you know, oh, so-and-so died of pneumonia and so-and-so died of a cold or whatever. And that's just how it is. Also, by the late fall, there was another horrible realization done by the powers that be at the United States Public Health Service. And that was that the flu was targeting industrial centers. 
Now, here's what's interesting about that. Remember that microbial understandings of microbial infection and basically our modern understanding of the flu and, and viruses and diseases in 1918 was essentially completely unknown. So basically these people thought that a lot of them that the Germans were infecting industrial centers and so that was horrible. Another realization was the way in which World War I was funded which was different to a huge degree from how wars today are funded. In World War I, uh, wars in America were funded by bond drives. So in order to have a bond drive, you needed to get people together. And once you started doing that, you were going to spread the virus. And even though, you know, the powers that be knew that they needed um, money for the war, they also knew this would spread the disease. And so you ended up sort of in this vicious cycle um, in Chicago and Philly and Boston. And, you know, in Chicago, for example, 96,000 people were exposed to the flu essentially in one day because of a bond drive. And, you know, you start to see this a lot, a vicious cycle of, oh, we have to fund the war. Oh, in funding the war, we're causing a virus. And that's really only if the doctors realized this was happening because a lot of them didn't. And a lot of even the, the I guess, the um, highly placed government doctors also didn't. So it was really kind of this, you know, if you had a government official that had put it together that this wasn't a German plot or that this wasn't whatever, then you were lucky. But a lot of them did. And you see that in other ways, too, that the United States Public Health Service had to really educate doctors that, you know, the three-day fever, the knockdown fever, and all these other names colloquially that people had come up with what we call the Spanish flu were actually the same thing. And that was sort of an uphill battle in a major, major way. Here's another thing that modern historians and medical professionals who are interested in studying the flu have to grapple with just in reality. Now, as somebody trained in history, you know, I've studied history basically my entire adult life at this point, or at least for most of it. And the, I guess the thing that I know that maybe some of you might not be aware of, you know, in 1918, not even the powers that be, but just regular, regular people, um, really could, could give you a very persuasive argument, at least in their mind, as to why not everybody in the country should be counted. Um, even the, even the U.S. Census at the time, in 1918, um, estimated that it only counted approximately 77% of the people, which is really amazing when you think about it. So, you know, that's, that's another thing, because 
in the late fall of 1918, the reason I'm bringing this up is in the late fall of 1918, the government, the federal government, had basically charged the U.S. Census to go out into the countryside of Americans and essentially to, to basically to go into these little ramshackle houses and, and shacks by the road and just basically everywhere where the government or the doctors might not, you know, be. They basically were charging the census to go around and, and check the health of the American people. The reason they were doing this, and let's let's not kid ourselves here, the reason they were doing this is they they quickly realized in the Senate that whether or not America was going to win this war that it was fighting, because remember World War One was totally raging at this point, but whether or not World War One was going to be essentially won by the Allies was going to depend a great huge deal on the health of the American population. And the census essentially came back and said, all right, well, I mean, we can do that, but here's the thing. We even think we don't even get to most people. And the reason that would be is because, like today, the census hires people on the ground, local people on the ground. And when you look at census records and you hear anecdotal stories from from uh, very elderly people, well, I, I guess those people are dead, but people who used to be around, you would hear stories about every once in a while a census worker would come knocking on the door and, you know, they, they would ask you, how many people live in this house? And either because you were in a, a part of town that the census worker didn't really want to go in or maybe they were tired or whatever the census worker would ask you how many people do you think live down this road and right there on the spot you had to come up with a number and you might not remember everybody or you might whatever and so that that's that's one thing and this still goes on today this still happens today and it's really amazing but anyway so that was one of the problems with counting people is the census said, well, first of all, we're not qualified to, to be medical people. And second, you know, we don't even, we don't get to everybody and we know we don't get to everybody. With that being said, with all that being said, the thing that we have to understand is according to the best estimate of, of the time, the Spanish flu crested in the U.S. civilian population two weeks after it crested in the armed forces, the Navy being the hardest hit of the armed forces. In the civilian population, the Spanish flu's uh, basically rage was pretty much, you know, very uneven. The Spanish flu hit Chicago very hard, it essentially skipped over the Appalachians, although, you know, later researchers tend to disagree with that assessment. But by and large, it hit bigger cities much, much harder than rural areas. Northern Maine, for example, was basically left untouched, but Boston was, was walloped. What we can basically think about with this from this thing is that it followed... The, the shipping routes, even inland. It followed the shipping routes and the along the waterways and along the railroads and 
things like that. And if you didn't live in an industrial center or a commercial center, you know, you might have been affected, but you might not have been. Now, some of this could be due to the urban-rural divide in America, the urban-rural-cultural divide in America, which at that point was, was raging. Okay, we, we need to remember that 1918 was 11 years before 1929. Okay, it was essentially the urban-rural divide in America was very real, and prohibition ended up being um, one of these kind of a an urban-rural sort of dividing line. And much like today, the, the rural communities wanted to show the, the city communities that they were much cleaner and safer. And so, again, you see a lot of the underreporting of the flu because it's interesting to talk to um, modern-day sort of virologists and stuff and historians and they'll say well you know the spanish flu missed missed this place but you know they had a lot of quote-unquote cold deaths and also some of those doctors in the rural areas might have thought that the knockdown fever or the three-day fever was different from the spanish flu um, and that's not to say that they were stupid, per se. It's, but it is to say that either they had an agenda, as all people have agendas, or it was to say that it was genuine ignorance. Like they were just ignorant of, of whatever fact. That the Spanish flu was in fact the same thing as, say, the knockdown fever. Uh, you'll remember... Loring Milner, Dr. Loring Milner in Kansas would report, you know, whole households were just destroyed by the Spanish flu. And one thing to remember about that is, you know, we only know about the Spanish flu in Kansas up until Camp Funston where Loring Milner went. So if Loring Milner didn't go there and it wasn't in a big city or a, a biggish town, they, did, they weren't captured in the data. One of the most horrible things, indeed, about this was that some places, like Louisville, Kentucky, for example, seemed to have been hit by wave after wave of the Spanish flu. Some places were hit in 1918, 1919, and some people controversially even think in 1920. And one more thing to think about for us modern people, and this is something I've been thinking about every time I read about this or, or press record about it. They didn't know what the flu was until the 30s, until well after the flu was gone. So the on-the-ground reality would have been absolutely terrifying for an awful lot of people. You know, you think about today with, with the, the current disease we have today and how you can have disagreements between people, some of them, you know, quite heated about the nature of the, the current pandemic and the nature of how it spreads and things like that. Well, juxtapose that with 1919. Remember that today, the average American is much more educated today than the average American was in 1919. And so even if you're not educated today in, in 
medical stuff, because you went to college, you know things and you have tools to learn about other stuff that they might not have known about or been aware of in, in 1919. So I guess like the on the ground reality of the fear for the average person in 1919 and 1918 and 1920 must have been amazing. It, it must have really just been this terrifying and, and frightening time to be alive, especially, you know, considering that you might have gone into 1918 and 1917 believing that only certain people could get the flu. And then by 1919 and 1920, you had enough anecdotal evidence if you lived in certain places to understand that, that no, everybody can get it. And imagine, okay, imagine if you had thought that and your family and your people had thought that for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And now suddenly you're confronted with evidence that says, no, actually, you can get this. That must have been terrifying to just normal humans, average normal humans. And a lot of this horror, a lot of the horror that was felt by average normal Americans was basically used in a way to demonize people, you know, demonize either the other, whoever the other was, or to demonize more specifically and more insidiously and, and in some ways a lot more lastingly and a lot more profoundly the urban Americans because rural America was still dominant politically and culturally in 1918 and 1919. And urban America was outside of New York City was essentially basically a very new and modern process and situation. You know, America had been urbanizing tremendously in 1900. And so this was a very, very new thing for people. And there were a lot of what you would call rural moralist people that were saying, well, see, this is uh, the result of, you know, of getting around each other and all this and for the Irish and the German people to to cavort with we good English Anglo-Saxon stock is to get the flu and this line of thought had an awful lot of traction in during this time it really did and and there's a lot of people including this person talking into this microphone who happens to believe that when you combine the 1918 flu pandemic with, say, the popular music of the day, which was jazz, with, say, the rising um, urban, basically the rising urban drinking culture and the rise in urban gambling culture and so on, you start to see the beginnings of prohibition come into the country. Now, prohibition had been basically a... a a moving process way before 1918, okay? And prohibition was never about, I don't want to drink. It was always about, I don't want these other people to drink. So, you know, this sort of dovetails in with what the 20s and the 30s culturally are going to be about. So this, this flu, this pandemic, had a tremendous impact on an awful lot of people. And again, and I said this in the last flu episode, that it's wrong, it's really, really wrong to say that the flu didn't change things because it 
plainly did. And one of the biggest changes was in a way to harden and to amplify the urban-rural divide in this country, both culturally, politically, and so on. And one of the ways in which you see that is through prohibition, because alcohol, up until this point, was essentially basically just part of American life, you know, in a very real sense. But once you start getting the flu, people all over the place start to think of ways in which this strange disease, which they really didn't understand, could travel. So, of course, you're thinking, well, dancing, alcohol, etc., and so on. I mean, and some of this was truly good-natured ways to get people away from, from drink and vice because they thought that caused the flu. In some ways, it was just a, a way to enforce your moral code on other people. But in either case, it happened, and it was pervasive in society. Then, of course, when you deal, at least historically, with the, you know, I guess the rural impact of the flu, there's a thought that I keep having over and over and over again. And the thought is this. As I've said, I've dealt with American demographic data for years. And American demographic data in rural communities, if you're not, I guess today, what you'd call the 1%, right? American demographic data, if you're not the uber wealthy or the 1% or whatever modern word you choose to use for these folks, um, was essentially non-existent almost to a laughable degree in a whole lot of ways, you know. So here's the thing that I keep thinking. As these rural people in these communities would talk about how cities were unhealthy, look, see, they have the flu, and here we are, this paragon of health and virtue. The thing I keep thinking is, yes, but for hundreds of years, you weren't even counting people. Right, so how could you possibly be counting people that, you know, had the flu if they're basically isolated in their cabin? Oh, and by the way, I'm not even going to talk about the, the blacks or the people of color of other colors, you know, other ethnicities that you probably never bothered to count in the first place, right? And here's, here's another thing that I that I keep thinking about over and over again. This guy, this Dr. Loring Milner, he was very much the exception to the rule. He was, he was very well educated, and he was a rural doctor, and he was interested in all of his patients surviving, even the people who weren't white. That's what's so interesting. And he kept running into essentially into resistance to that over and over again from authorities as far away as Harvard, you know, but here he was just genuinely earnestly interested in the health care of his patients in Kansas. Anyway, so, you know, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening, and I'm going to have Andrew Vickery play me out. 
Remember to follow me on Twitter at, at Charlie Benz. I'm sorry, at Benz Charlie on Twitter. Remember also that I, you can find me at, at Ben Kitchings Podcaster on Instagram. And you can even find me on Facebook at Ben Kitchings. I've got so many people hitting this podcast up now. I'm thinking seriously about having a Facebook group. Um, I'm I think I really might do that. I think also, and I'll do a Facebook group, but I'll talk to you about that later in a later episode. All right, Andrew, play me out.